Thanks, Mike. Um, now, uh, now, can you all hear me? Yeah, so uh, I should say that you should have a Bible in front of you, or if you're using your phone, be ready to flick around with it. I feel like you've been lulled into a false sense of security with this six verses of business, uh, because we're actually going to be looking at four or five chapters. So um, I hope you're comfortable. Um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we um, rejoice that we have come to this wonderful part of the Scriptures today. We pray that you would fill our hearts with hope and confidence in your promises, that we might live by them and long for their ultimate fulfilment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's a pretty catchy beginning to a book. And it's the famous opening lines, really, of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the word meaningless is a translation of the Hebrew word for vapour, mist, like steam coming out the end of a kettle. And it captures the idea that's reflected upon throughout that book of the reflection of the teacher that so many aspects of life that we pursue prove themselves to be substanceless, temporary and ultimately disappointing. And that that is life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it. You know, the idea of vapour is that even if we finally catch that thing that we've been striving for all of these years or whatever, we sit back and we enjoy it But before long, we say, now what? This existential dilemma can prove even more troubling when we run up against realities that we actually have no hope of defeating. If our pursuit of meaning and something to hold fast to is shaken even when we succeed, how much more acute is it when we face loss? That feeling when the inevitability of impending failure becomes clear. You're not going to get it done in time. There's no way you're going to pass this exam. Your business simply cannot recover. That feeling when something is broken and it can't be fixed. Your health. Your memory a relationship that you once held precious. Maybe even the reality that you're getting older and that that thing that you used to be able to do, you'll never be able to do again. The reality that the days that are ahead of you are becoming far fewer than the ones that are behind you. See, this is the existential dilemma that at some point, or many points, confronts everybody whether by what we gain or by what we're losing. What endures? What is not vapour and mist? What is there that I can truly hold on to? See, this is a question that our secular world has no real answer for. What comfort, for instance, can atheism provide? Just accept it. You and those that you love are magnificent biological machines. 
impressive but soulless flukes. So do your best to fulfil your biological programming and further your species, make the most of life and then embrace oblivion. Okay, so my life is broadly irrelevant. Sounds great. Let's get some motivational posters drawn up for that one. And our lazy agnosticism, it's got no answer either. Well, the answer may be out there, or it may be not. Maybe we go to another place, or maybe we do not. Maybe there's a God who cares, probably. We like to think so, maybe. And at funerals, you know, you get those string of nebulous poetry that, that attempts to make us feel good about the fate of our departed loved one by asserting beliefs that few of us would agree to if they were proposed to us by someone knocking on the door and trying to sell it to us, but we'll buy it at a funeral. Hope is merely wishful thinking and becomes as ethereal as the realities that we were wrestling with in the first place. No, we want and we need something to hold on to a promise that will not slip through our fingers, that will not fade away, a hope that's got a backbone that can truly reassure us that life is not meaningless and give us confidence in a future that as yet we do not see. Well, let me tell you, the good news is that is the hope that you're going to hear about today. True hope, powerful hope, is hope that reassures even while staring existential terror in the eyes. That is when the truth needs to be heard the loudest. And that is what we're going to see in chapters 30 to 34. They are chapters that are full of amazing hope. But these great promises take place when terror is on the doorstep. Have a look in your Bibles at chapter 30 verses 12 to 17. Listen to this. Your wound is incurable. Your injury, beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins I have done these things to you. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. So you see, see, there's hope, but it's set in the midst of serious darkness and pain, isn't it? And what about these verses just before the great promise of the new covenant in chapter 31, verse 15? This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. 
They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants. See, the image is the despair of Rachel, one of the ancestral mothers of Israel, weeping in grief because her children, the the people of the northern kingdom in this context, have been taken away only to be told that they would return. See, hope but set in the context of sadness. But God gives his greatest reassurance to Jeremiah when the terror isn't in the poetry but is very visible and is very present. Have a look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. A wonderful prophecy is going to happen from after this, but look at the context. Under siege and under guard. And we're reminded of this same situation again in chapter 33, verse 1, and in chapter 34, verse 1. Listen to the beginning of chapter 34. While Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, just in case we'd forgotten it from the two previous chapters, while Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms and peoples in the empire he ruled were fighting against Jerusalem. Do you see the way that's described? Like the whole world is against Judah. While they were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding towns, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And even this word begins darkly. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, go to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he'll burn it down. You will not escape from his grasp, but will surely be captured and given into his hands. You will see the king of Babylon with your own eyes and he will speak with you face to face. And you will go to Babylon. And that prophecy of seeing him with his own eyes is ominous because that will be one of the last things he sees with his own eyes. But not the last. The last thing he will see with his own eyes is very dark. You see, if you look on the screen, this is the place where that message from Jeremiah was probably given. All right? that, that's, it's the ruins of the king's palace in the city of David in Jerusalem. You can go to those ruins now, and, and in, in, the, in the area in front of it, you can see the ruins of the royal um, houses where the other nobles lived. The hills across from this photo would have been covered. So you want to imagine those hills full of the hordes of the Babylonian soldiers and their camps, that that is the view. You could hear their voices, their taunts, their battle songs. You could smell their cooking while you're under siege, starving. Siege ramps were in the process of being built across that valley, creeping ever closer to your walls. And whatever side you went to of the city, whichever wall you went out to have a look from, you would see and smell and hear the same things. That's plenty of time for your imagination to get to work, isn't it? 
What are they going to do when they finally break through? How long do I have left to live? Do I have any chance at all of escape? You've got to put yourself in that place. What it's like to be under siege. See, like a python slowly crushing its victim, their doom was coming. And even the Lord's prophet is saying, you're going to lose. And so it would prove. You know, they found in the excavation right there where that photo was, a thick layer of ash from when the Babylonians burnt that palace down. They found Babylonian and Israelite arrowheads scattered around the place. And it is in this context, with the place surrounded by Babylonian forces, that God gives some of the most hope-filled promises of the whole of the Old Testament. It's almost as if the intensity of the looming disaster has to be matched and even exceeded at each point by the majesty of the restoration that will be coming. Five times through this section, we're told that the days are coming, the days are coming, the days are coming, the days are coming, the days are coming. And each time, another facet is featured of the jewel of God's promise. First, on the eve of their removal from the land, it's promised that they will be returned to it. Jeremiah 30 verse 3, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. And to those about to be exiled, he gives this comfort. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. Think of the terror they're enduring right now. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. But there's another feature of these chapters revealed there. Did you see who would be restored? Not just the tiny leftover of God, remnant of God's people, but both Israel and Judah. Throughout these chapters, it's as if these promises are just as much for the 100 years ago destroyed northern kingdom as they are for the southern kingdom to whom they're being preached. They are for all God's people. All God's people will return, not just a portion of them. And then when they return to the land, it's not going to be to irrelevance and poverty, but that they might flourish with joy and new life. Jeremiah 31, 27. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And just listen to the joy in these verses earlier in chapter 31, from verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion, they will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. 
They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. And then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I'll satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Now imagine how sweet a longing that would create for a people that have endured humiliation and shame and the unspeakable deprivations of famine, sword and plague. And then this, restored to the land, flourishing in the land, something amazing and new would come. A new and even more secure relationship with God. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, they were going into exile because they continually failed to keep their side of the covenant. Ever since they entered into the land the first time under Joshua, they couldn't and wouldn't keep it. So why could they have any hope that even after they returned that it would be different? If they could not keep it before, ever, why should a return be any different? Why should they expect that history would not repeat itself and they just find themselves in exile again? Because God will do something new. As we're going to explore again in a few minutes' time, this time when he brings them back, God promises he will transform his people from the inside. The insecurity that their own sin inevitably will bring will be done away with. And a restored people in a restored land under a new and better covenant will need a new capital. As their sin saw Jerusalem defiled and destroyed, God promises its magnificent renewal. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Garib and then turn to Goa, the whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be holy to the Lord, a place which was remembered defiled by dead bones and, and all of that stuff because they sacrificed their own children in the fire to foreign gods in those valleys. That whole area now is going to be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. The holy city would actually be a holy city, free of defilement, and so never again to be destroyed. And who should dwell in that holy city? But God's promised king. A country that's so horrifically let down and led astray by its corrupt rulers are reminded that God would keep his promise to provide them with a perfect one. Chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. The days are coming, 
declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it or he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Saviour. And with the assurance of righteous kingship comes the equally wonderful assurance and promise that a faithful priesthood that will never fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer offerings, chapter 33, verse 18, on behalf of God's people. In other words, there's always going to be someone to represent them faithfully. Now, they're five amazing promises, aren't they? Wonderful words of hope. You know, there's this beautiful sentence in chapter 31. It seems that um, the, the word of God in chapters 30 and 31 came to Jeremiah in the form of a dream. Well, at the end of it, we read this in chapter 31, verse 26. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. I wonder when the last time Jeremiah could have said that would have been. My sleep had been pleasant to me. You ever had that? You ever had a dream so good that you woke up in a good mood? Well, imagine how Jeremiah must have felt. 30 years of being given words of judgment to speak. Words condemning vile sin. And finally, he's given this overwhelmingly wonderful word of hope. But as he looked around, what did he see? He was still an outcast in doomed Jerusalem. Could these promises really be true? Again, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Now, listen to these words of assurance, verse 35 of chapter 31. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord. In other words, if only when the sun stops rising and the sea stops raging and the, sun and the moon and the stars stop shining, will ever Israel ever cease being a nation before me? Verse 37, this is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, which of course they can't, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Assurance after assurance after assurance. I swear by myself, he's practically saying, I swear by my creation that I will never leave you or forsake you and I will honour these promises. In fact, in chapter 32... God gets Jeremiah to do another piece of performance prophecy like he did last week with the yoke. He tells him that his cousin Hananel, Hanamel sorry, is going to come and ask him to buy his field. Now, imagine this. One look out the window at the surrounding armies of Babylon 
building siege ramps up towards the walls of your city would tell you that this was the equivalent of throwing your money away. The whole land was under occupation and God has told everyone that the future is death and exile. And yet God says to Jeremiah, go and buy that field. In fact, make sure there are witnesses as a sign that even after their punishment and exile, they will return and houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Put your money where this promise is. As dark and terrifying as the surroundings seemed, God's promise was something that Jeremiah could literally bank on. But of all the promises in these chapters, there there are two in particular that I want us to return to briefly so that we don't miss their particular significance. And the first is that great promise of a new covenant. I want us to see how this new covenant will work. You see, the old covenant, articulated in the law of Moses, detailed God's relationship with Israel and the terms and conditions under which that relationship was to be lived out, including the blessings that would come from obedience and the curses that would come from disobedience, which they are now experiencing. This was the law that God's people were meant to teach their children and one another in order to make sure that it didn't get forgotten and that it would be kept by the nation. Of course, it was this law that condemned them when they failed to teach it and failed to keep it. But the new covenant's going to work differently. It wouldn't be outside them, nor would it be passive. Something written down that depended upon the faithfulness and instruction of others in order to be passed on. Now, have a look at how God's new covenant is going to work. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So the time is coming when all God's people will know him and know him from the inside, in their hearts and in their minds, because God himself will imprint his law upon them. They don't need somebody else to go teach them. God himself's going to do it. He's going to write it upon their hearts. This new covenant will not be mediated by mere people. God will make himself known immediately and personally to every single one of his people. But how could a holy God do this and be present in unholy, sinful people? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There will be an internal cleansing from the inside. Forgiveness, the taking away of sin, is going to be at the heart of this new covenant and make it possible. 
Okay, now let's focus on the second remarkable promise, the promise of a Messiah, the king of the line of David. There is more to this than just a promise that the line of David would be restored. It is the promise, it is that the promise is for one king. Chapter 33, verse 26, has the Lord swearing that he would place one of David's sons as ruler over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which is his shorthand for talking about my people forever. And we are told, in fact, who this one righteous descendant of David is going to be. Did you notice that when we looked at chapter 33, verses 15 and 16? Let's have a look at it again. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it, the righteous branch, will be called. This is the name, the Lord, our righteous saviour. Who's going to save them? The Lord. Who's the king going to be? Yahweh, our righteous saviour. The Lord himself. This great new covenant will be God's work in us and God himself will be the king that brings this wonderful salvation about. And you know what name in Greek? means Yahweh is salvation, don't you? It's the name Jesus. You know, after Jeremiah's 70 years, the Jewish exiles did come back to the land in dribs and drabs over periods of many decades. And these great promises were fulfilled, sort of, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt eventually. We're told that those who actually survived the exile and came back when they saw the new temple wept. But Judah was small and its division from Samaria was just as hard as it had ever been. And while there was a descendant of David, he certainly wasn't reigning, and the priesthood was still corrupt. But then a man named Jesus turns up, a descendant of David, who preaches the good news that the kingdom of God is now near, who says to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. Like on the inside. More than that, promises a magnificent restoration to fullness of life. Very truly I tell you, whoever, has, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, Jesus says, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. But the forgiveness and new life would come at a tremendous cost. 
on the night before he would die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, Jesus reminded his disciples of Jeremiah's promise and pointed to the way that this great new covenant would come about. He celebrates the Passover, which, remember, was the beginning of the old was remembered in the Old Covenant. Luke twenty two nineteen. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the Lord, our righteous Saviour, who, as Paul writes in Romans 4, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's making us now righteous. This is the Lord, our righteous Saviour, whose Holy Spirit now dwells in every believer, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and who truly enables us to know God from the inside, in spirit and in truth, not merely as his people, but as his precious children. Listen to this from Romans 8. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see the closeness of that relationship to the words, because they will all know me, echo through here. Know him as his children with his spirit in us, to call him Father. That's knowing the Lord from the least to the greatest. And this is the Lord and righteous Saviour whose presence we will stand before in the magnificent new creation that he's prepared for us. The, the language of revelation, what is it? A new Jerusalem descending from heaven that has no more, where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That wonderful place that we read about earlier of safety and healing and righteousness and peace and life and light. There's so much Jeremiah and Ezekiel throughout the book of Revelation. It's like it's written to people experiencing the darkness of exile and saying, yes, you've got to go through this, but here's the light. Here's the light. And it is where the scriptures end. That is when the exile of all God's people truly and fully ends. That is the greater hope, the ultimate fulfilment of the promises that God gave through a lonely and hated prophet in a city under siege and on the brink of destruction. Now, I'm not sure if you're finding yourself continually grasping at vapours as you... Find yourself living your life trying to grab hold of the world's hopes that aren't hopes. Or maybe if you're feeling very much like you can relate to Jeremiah and his world right now, you actually feel under siege, 
and surrounded by darkness. You know, we called this series in the book of Jeremiah the hard word. But not all hard words are dark words. You know that the hardest substance in the universe is a diamond. And it's also one of the most beautiful and precious of things. Well, the hope of the word that is the gospel is a diamond. And unlike the vapours of the rest of this world's glories, this is one you can actually hold on to. Even and especially at times of darkness, when the decaying and fearful realities of this fallen world surrounds us. You know, the book of Hebrews, after testifying for quite a few chapters actually, about the promise of the new covenant in Christ, says in Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And because Christ is risen, those promises that come with him are sure. It's faith in those promises as Peter puts, his great and precious promises, that helps us to let go of those things that are not worth grasping, that we might hold tightly to what will endure. Um, On Friday night, uh, I had the privilege of going to the um, consecration of Kanishka Raphael, our new archbishop. Uh, it um, It was a great great evening, um, and to hear five, six hundred voices singing and the kind of, there's nothing like a huge pipe organ with brass and timpanies and all of those sorts of things and pumping this stuff out, but there was a song that was um, sung during there that, because this had been in my brain, um, I couldn't sing the verse. I I couldn't sing it. I I just had to kind of listen. And it's it's from um, a hymn called, I Vow to Thee, My Saviour. And uh, it's, uh, it's that great song that Gustav Holtz wrote, wrote the music for. Let me read you this verse and I'll finish with this. Oh, tell me of the kingdom that stands the test of time. Oh, lead me to its gateway and speak the word sublime that tells me I'm forgiven, my name is in the book. The cross of Jesus holds me as heaven would I look. Baptised into a living hope, I'll walk the path that's new and the prize of God in Jesus forever I'll pursue. Amen.